Hello, this is Dr. Jeff Gold, and I'm the Chancellor of the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And I wanna welcome you to Healthcare Heart to Heart, providing insights into the medical and the scientific issues of the day. And as you may know, I'm a recovering cardiothoracic surgeon, a longtime medical educator, and a firm believer in the ability of science to change lives for the better. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Wengel. And uh, as some in our audience may know, Dr. Wengel is our Assistant Vice Chancellor for Campus Wellness here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and is also a professor in the UNMC Department of Psychiatry. And of course, he's joining us today near the end of Suicide Prevention Month uh, and the head of the World Mental Health Awareness Month uh, in October. So Dr. Wengel is the uh, immediate past chair of our Department of Psychiatry, where he has specialized and continues to clinically specialize in geriatric psychiatry, that is to say, psychiatry for those that are aging gracefully. Hmm. But his work here at UNMC has given him a very broad view of the spectrum and the challenges facing individuals of all ages with mental wellness areas of concern, specifically with what we've been doing about clinician burnout and overall mental health of students, uh, faculty, and staff. So Dr. Uh, Wengel, welcome. It's great to have you with us uh, for this podcast. And I know we have a lot of very important things to talk about, but our audience always loves to hear about how you decided for to uh, take a trajectory into a career in the health professions. And then as part of that, how did you decide to be a mental health professional? How did you decide uh, or when did you decide? Uh, was there a magic moment that you decided, you know, I'm going to become a psychiatrist? Well, uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Gold, for that kind introduction. And thank you for this opportunity to uh, to be here and have this conversation with you. Um, I really remember always wanting to be a physician. I think, uh, you know, going back to maybe when I was five or, or seven or something like that. And I think it really came down to um, my respect and admiration for my own physician back then, that uh, kind, compassionate individual that helped relieve my suffering. You know, if I came to him in pain with a sore throat or who knows what, uh, just a really, really nice uh, individual, but also, you know, somebody that knew science. And I always like that combination of showing compassion and yet uh, having a scientific background, being able to employ science to help relieve human suffering. In terms of becoming a psychiatrist, I originally thought uh, when I entered medical school, I was going to become a surgeon like you. But uh, as I went through my clinical rotations, I realized uh, that was not where my skill set lies. And uh, it was really about mentoring. I had a, um, a wonderful experience here. I did my training here at UNMC. And I had just wonderful uh, faculty mentors in every rotation I did. But particularly in psychiatry, I had uh, several faculty members that were just outstanding human beings. Things, uh, really, really good with patients, really compassionate and empathic, but again, also very, very competent physicians that kept up with the latest scientific findings. And just really, I admired them so much that I thought I could really see myself doing that and being like them. So I try, I aspire to, I don't know that I've made it, but I aspire to be like my mentors. Well, you know, everything I've heard from uh, students, faculty, and staff, uh, now obviously I don't know any of your patients, but uh, <clears throat> Certainly, uh, the rumor on the block 
is uh, A plus, Steve. And oh, uh, it's well, great to have you uh, uh, on the team. So, you. Uh, you know, getting into our subject for discussion today is we're nearing the end of Suicide Awareness Month. And uh, I'm sure that as a mental health professional, as a psychiatrist, uh, you've thought an awful lot about this. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, self-harm. We talk about wellness in the sense of preventing self-harm and harm to others. And of course, uh, completed suicide, uh, death by suicide is uh, one of the tragic outcomes of this. So as you reflect on the awareness, what is it about that that, uh, that our, you think our audience would best take away from this Awareness Month? It's it is an opportunity to reflect, I think, on this this serious, serious topic. Um, suicide is all too common, as we all know. We see it in the news. I think we're all affected by it, uh, by, you know, friends, family members, colleagues. Uh, as you mentioned uh, here in healthcare, of course, we're deeply concerned about fellow physicians, our students, our residents, uh, people in all walks of life in healthcare being at higher risk. Um, and, you know, I know you you care deeply about this as I do, and you know, trying to figure out what is what 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 are the right things to do for suicide prevention. And in a sense, though, I think all that we do, all that you do as chancellor, all that I do as both a psychiatrist and as a uh, wellness champion, really is about suicide prevention, whether we frame it that way or not. Um, the things that we do to build community here among our providers and our students, for example, uh, is a form of prevention, I think. Um, raising awareness like we're doing right now. And again, thank you again for this opportunity. I think getting these subjects out there, getting them out of the shadows and to the forefront is um, super important. And uh, again, I admire everything you've done uh, uh, in that way. I think the more we talk about these things, uh, the better for everybody. Yeah, so we've talked a lot, uh, Steve, about destigmatizing the conversations and bringing them forward. And not just about suicide, of course, but about a much broader panel of mental health concerns, because as uh, our audience probably knows, that when clinicians are under stress or have uh, issues regarding anxiety or other uh, clinical wellness related matters, that not only affects them, but it affects their families, it affects their patients, it affects the learners, it affects their productivity, their self-esteem, and it is all uh, very much connected. And so if there was a message that uh, you wanted to transmit to friends and family to our students, uh, uh, aside from destigmatizing the conversation. And that can be as simple, of course, as just asking somebody how you do it or recognizing somebody that appears to be under, uh, you know, a significant amount of stress. Uh, what would you say that folks should look, be looking for in their colleagues, in their families and their friends that would raise the need to either ask a question, make a phone call, uh, but to do something uh, in this area. I think it I think it comes down to seeing or or paying attention to changes changes in the other uh the other person it could be um withdrawing or being you know kind of withdrawn where they just uh are not 
interacting as much or in the same way that they normally would. Um, certainly people that seem preoccupied with talking about death or dying, thats that seems kind of self-evident, but it's good to get that on the table. Typically, that's not what happens. Uh, you know, oftentimes, especially in healthcare, people tend to keep a lot of these things more to themselves. So we have to go more on behavioral observations, like I mentioned, withdrawal. Um Changes in uh, substance use, for example, people that maybe are drinking more than usual or uh, using street drugs when that's not sort of something they typically do. Um, agitation. Um, they seem really restless. Uh, and again, a change. So really, we're talking about changes. Changes in sleep, either sleeping way more than usual or having trouble sleeping. Uh, sudden mood changes. That's another kind of red flag. And then another one which um, we see certainly in my clinical population is people that appear like they're tying up loose ends in their life. They're giving away possessions. Um, they're kind of putting their affairs in order. Uh, can be obviously those are good things. You know, making plans for the future and um, you know, advanced directives and all that. We encourage everybody to do that. But if it seems like something out of the ordinary, you know, where they are uh, suddenly giving away prized possessions for no apparent reason, that can be a warning sign too. You know, uh, I remember well, many, many years ago during my time on the uh, ACGME board, uh, you may recall we had an instance uh, in uh, two very prominent East Coast institutions where we had some resident suicides. Yes. I remember Dr. Carol Bernstein saying that uh, suicide, uh, death by suicide, is a combination of circumstance and opportunity. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to make the point that there's not always a history of mental health abnormalities mm -hmm. and challenges that individuals have taken. And indeed, in many instances, that is not the case. And maybe you could uh, uh, dig into that just a little bit, Steve, so our audience can understand the difference between, you know, what I would call lifelong or chronic mental health uh, issues versus the circumstance opportunity part of the equation. Yes, I think that's a really important um, item to, to talk about that I think there's an assumption uh, among people, including mental health providers, that someone that takes their own life must have suffered from a mental health problem like depression. Certainly that's quite common, but it's not universal. And uh, suicide, as, as, our, as our friend Dr. Bernstein, as you mentioned, uh, the other thing that she's fond of saying is that uh, suicide is a complicated um, behavior, if you will. Uh, it's rarely just one thing. But having said that, it often, uh, uh, the, the, the precursor is often a sudden loss could be loss of one's health, receiving a new diagnosis, could be loss of a job or some other financial setback, loss of a relationship. Those are the kind of, I think, the big three. And so it is not always related to a chronic uh, mental health condition like depression or anxiety or, uh, or, or the like. Can be, but not, but not necessarily. You know, I think it's also important to point out, and maybe you can provide a little more depth on this as well, in that for individuals that are considering self-harm, considering uh, attempting uh, suicide, that there's really good intervention available if we can get to them in a timely fashion, and that the statistics are well in their favor of preventing uh, serious self-harm and preventing death by suicide. 
Right. Um, su- suicide is often, I think, an impulsive act uh, where, you know, circumstances you mention and opportunity align and, uh, and then, unfortunately, tragedy sometimes does ensue. And so if we can uh, break that circuit, I guess, if you will, or intervene, you know, right at that time and uh, get them through that immediate crisis, frequently, more, more often than not, uh, they, get, they get beyond that crisis and they can see hope. I think one of the, one of the real, um, you know, precursors, again, is a sense of desperateness or uh, desperation, sorry, or hopelessness. And when we're in that constricted state of mind, we don't see opportunities that are there right in front of us. And so if we can get them past that immediate crisis and then help them see that there really are opportunities, uh, that there is hope, um, it makes all the difference in the world. So from a very practical matter, Steve, as uh, you know, we've talked about, you've talked about the, uh, you know, the observations uh, regarding patterns of sleep and uh being introverted versus extroverted, changes in alcohol or substance use, and many other, you know, what I would call early warning signs or smoke coming out of the gas tank, so to speak. Mm. And if, you know, uh, we were to observe that in one of our colleagues, friends, family members, et cetera, what's the practical thing to do? That is, again, I think the the heart of this conversation, practically speaking, what can one do? I think the first thing that I, I ask people to do is to talk about it. Um, again, some seems kind of self-evident, but oftentimes we're reluctant to talk about these things. It's hard to bring up the subject. And sometimes we kind of dance around it because we don't want to insult somebody or whatever. And I'm here to tell you the single best thing a person can do is take the person aside to a private place, uh, you know, out of earshot of other people, talk a little bit about their concern and what they're observing specifically like, gee, uh, Joe or Sarah or whatever. I noticed in the last week or two, you've you've not really been quite yourself, it seems. And then talk a little bit about the behavior in a non-judgmental way. And then at some point in the conversation, I think it's really important to ask them very directly and very specifically if they've thought about suicide or thought about taking their life, some version of that question, uh, as clearly and as directly as possible. People sometimes are afraid that if they ask that question, they will plant that seed that a person that wasn't thinking about suicide now is. And that is not true. That really does not happen. Um, it, well, I want to just underscore that, Steve, because that's a really critical point, that asking somebody if they're considering self-harm or, or taking their life does not prompt them to more seriously consider that. To the contrary, it's an important part of the conversation. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no. this is such a critically important concept that I just want to underscore it. I'm, I'm glad you did. I think it bears putting a real a real point on it. Uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, they say talk saves lives. And this particular talk about that, that question in particular can really save a life. Absolutely right. So I think, you know, that's the thing. Get get uh, just mention your your observations. Uh, ask about suicide or self-harm. And then if you have any doubts at that point or any concern, stay with the person, physically stay with them, do your best to um, uh, 
help them stay away from means of suicide, like, uh, you know, medications and weapons. And then, uh, again, if one is really concerned, then I think that next step is some is getting some professional help. And there are different avenues. Uh, there is a national suicide and crisis lifeline that I know you're quite aware of and you promote as I do 988 anywhere in the country. Uh, they have trained counselors standing by 24-7, and I think that's a really, really important resource. 988, I think, is something we should all be be aware of. Sometimes, uh, though, if the threat appears very, very imminent, the next best step is actually to call 911 and get professional help that way. Um, taking a person to the nearest emergency room also is a, is a, uh, uh, a very useful resource. Um, as well as sometimes talking to the primary care provider. It all depends on the, you know, how um, imminent the risk appears to be. But doing something, starting with a conversation, I think, are the, is the key messages. I, that's exactly right. And so talking about it, asking the question, then listening. I think that's the other thing I didn't really say earlier that I'd like to kind of highlight. Listening without judging and without trying to talk a person out of it, because sometimes that that appears like almost like you're arguing with them. Uh, like, you know, it's it's better to listen, not judge, non-judgmentally, um, because that's that's one of the antidotes to this. I think suicide and, you know, depression and mental health concerns in general oftentimes are, are lonely places to be. People often feel like they're the only one that feels that way or that suffers uh, in that particular way. And then having another human being that cares enough to listen without judging them, that's healing. That makes a big difference. A very, very important point. And then there seems to be uh, an endless number of websites, smartphone apps, uh, you know, professional organizations, help sites, et cetera. Uh, you know, I, for instance, uh, have a number of those uh, uh, loaded into my uh, smartphone. Uh, so they're, they're in my key contacts. So I know where they are uh, in event I were to come across one of those situations. And do you recommend that people do something similar as well? I, I do. And, uh, you know, 988, again, I, I put that in my phone as a contact under suicide prevention. Because in the heat of the moment, if you're dealing with a, a you know, a distressed colleague or family member, you might, you might not remember. But so I think having that in our phones is a good thing. Um, there are a few other um, resources that I think are pretty helpful. The Veterans Administration put out a really good phone app that I was just reminded of called Virtual Hope Box. Let me say that again, Virtual Hope Box. It's an app, it's free, don't have to be a veteran, anybody can use it. And it has, uh, it's really interesting. It has um, a, a number of stress management tools and it has a place where you can store videos like you know videos that you create from family members uh, or pictures that you add or favorite songs, whatever, things that will help you in the midst of a crisis. So I like that app a lot, Virtual Hope Box. Super. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Steve, for your time and more importantly, for all you've done to uh, serve the mental health needs of our community and for all you continue to do to focus on wellness and resiliency uh, around uh, the healthcare professionals of our community and specifically here at UNMC. You know, just to personally reflect for a minute over the time of my career, I've not only attended any number of memorial services for faculties, staff, students who have died by uh, suicide, 
And in many of those instances, uh, I was the person that called their family mm -hmm. to unfortunately relay some of this very difficult news. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that we're having this conversation on this podcast, and one of the reasons I care so much about this is, I don't wanna ever do that again. Yes. I mean, those are some of the hardest conversations you'd ever want to have with the parents of a college mm -hmm. student or a med student or or some other uh, faculty mm -hmm. or staff member uh, to tell them uh, something that they are never, ever prepared to hear, no matter how desperate the situation uh, may have been. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the theory that it is far better to light a candle than to curse the darkness, we mm -hmm. can continue to talk about this, continue to shed light on it as much as possible and to be proactive uh, in this area. And I know that you are a major contributor and I just want to extend my thanks to you. Well, I, I deeply appreciate that more than uh, you, you can know, but I'd also like to turn it back to you and thank you for your leadership on this. I think, uh, you know, bringing these conversations out of the shadows again and uh, uh, having these conversations frequently as you do at uh, various meetings and venues and this very podcast, thank, thank you so much. Uh, it it instills hope. I think it's all about hope. No. Absolutely. All about hope. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Healthcare Heart to Heart with Dr. Jeff Gold. And until next time, stay healthy.